Today on Physically Spiritual, I have the joy of sharing Dr. Kevin Majors with you all. Born and raised in Minnesota, he did his undergraduate studies at the University of Dallas in his medical school and residency at the University of Texas Southwestern Medical Center. He did a fellowship with the Beck Institute of Cognitive Therapy and Research and was a certified affiliate of the Academy of Cognitive Therapy. He's on the faculty of Harvard Medical School where he teaches a weekly class on cognitive behavioral therapy to psychiatrists in training. And he's also the co-founder of Optimal Work. Welcome to the show, Kevin. Yeah, Andrew, thanks so much for having me on. Yeah, I like to start every guest with the question, how did God bring you to what you do today? Because I often find our work and our mission is kind of laid bare in our story. So I'm just curious, you're a Harvard professor, you do this work of kind of combining classical thought with modern science and helping people to be more productive, but then also really be more virtuous. And like, what brought you to this? Well, I guess it's a great question. The, I think one of the decisive moments of my, I, I'll say two decisive moments. And one is when I happened to pick up the Summa Theologica at the Southdale Public Library in Edina, Minnesota. And I was just looking for something challenging to read when I was in 10th grade, just the beginning of 10th grade. And I was amazed that, wow, this has so many questions in it and so many answers. So I checked it out and I started reading it every day. And I've kept up since then reading Aquinas basically every single day. Uh, and so I could go a very long time and not break that streak. So reading Thomas Aquinas prepared me mentally by giving me a kind of an anthropology to work with. Later, you know, well, I just, even before that, I always wanted to be a medical doctor. So, I, and I remember, I remember having dolls of surgeons because I, was, I always wanted to be a cardiothoracic surgeon when I was little. And I had uh, kind of put that on hold a little bit. I went to University of Dallas. I dived into the core curriculum. And then eventually through a number of things, I got, I reawoke my interest in medicine. But I had this, this dual interest then. I was very interested in medicine, very interested in Thomas Aquinas, trying to see how do these things combine. And more and more, psychiatry seemed to be the perfect place where they met. That Aquinas had a way of understanding how we're built, cause and effect inside the mind. Like, how is it that we work? Particularly, what does it mean to have an intellect and a will? What does it mean to have freedom? And then in college, I read uh, Viktor Frankl, um, and that helped to solidify my interest in psychiatry and psychotherapy. His book, Man's Search for Meaning, I found fascinating. The other decisive influence, which happened when I was visiting the University of Dallas as a senior in high school, is I visited a center of Opus Dei uh, that was near University of Dallas, and then I uh, got a copy of The Way when I was there visiting. And I took it home and I started reading it. And I read this point that made a huge impact on me. Don't say, that person annoys me. Think, that person sanctifies me. And a light went off in my mind. Later, I would know that I had just discovered reframing. So this is concept in cognitive behavioral therapy, where you take something that was a challenge that you're viewing negatively, and instead you flip it to see how it's really an opportunity when viewed in a wider context. So annoying people, annoying happenings, when viewed narrowly in terms of what do I enjoy? Yeah, 
it might be might just be negative but you can widen the context once you see it and to see that in fact it's sanctifying so hidden in reframing is an entire theology of the cross of of understanding like what it is that brings out our best and it's precisely these difficulties seen in the fuller context i also could see that faith is what gives the widest possible context in which to view any challenge so only with the context that infinitely wide that spans to eternity that spans to all of human history then you can actually see the true nature of every challenge so that idea that like faith is the context that allows us to make sense of difficulty no matter what the difficulty may be and so i could see then that faith is actually essential to stabilizing the work of psychology the work of psychology is to help people to reframe but the faith is what allows people to reframe anything so when you picked up that sumo was the faith already alive in your life or was it just a hard book yeah so i was um i was raised catholic by devout catholic parents uh my dad was very much uh an intellectual catholic uh his brother was a psychologist uh and on the faculty at university and so there was a sense of studying the faith and reading the history of things so hilaire belloc i read i read a lot of hilaire in high school a lot of hilaire belloc a lot of uh, chesterton um, and just a whole bunch of other like the catholic encyclopedia i read that all the time so that was after my faith really woke up the wake up was actually right around the same time as discovering the summa um and that was um i remember it was actually because it was my sophomore year and later i figured out it was actually the feast of the rosary our lady of the rosary but i remember just getting inspired that and i went to ask my dad because i knew he prayed the rosary regularly but we didn't as a family so I, I remember asking him to teach me to pray it um, around the same time i found this little book true devotion to mary in our in our parish library and that was probably i i could say that was like the first spiritual reading book i ever read and it just completely knocked me off my chair it was like it was it was the most beautiful thing uh to see someone engaging the faith in this way the way saint louis de montfort did um and so i started praying the rosary every day and very soon i started going to daily mass um i'd gone to daily mass with my mom sometimes when i was growing up uh, but uh but i hadn't it hadn't really been also part of our life we always went on sundays um so I'd, so i never had a real rebellious period when i, when I was in 10th grade i decided to study things more you know, and then I quickly got into a deeper practice and started praying the whole rosary every day, going to daily mass. Um, and then, uh, yeah, just reading writings of saints. And so I think all of that happened starting in 10th grade and then continued ever since then. What was it like going into your professional journey then, like medical school, starting out as an academic doctor, but also having this faith in the Catholic Church? it's always i have to say i've never had any trouble in the slightest sometimes people wonder is harvard a hostile environment for for people of faith and my experience has been like unequivocally a good one hmm. so it's people are very respectful uh now everything i talk about in my actual lectures my work of teaching it's not specifically about the faith it's about how to do cognitive behavioral therapy 
And that's what I am teaching there. Uh, but we do certainly talk about ideals and how to help our patients to find ideals. So there are there is a work of cognitive behavioral therapy, which I find deeply consistent with the faith. And it's this idea that our behavior should be brought in line with our ideals, not our ideals brought in line with our behavior. And particularly because if I if the if you're leading, you know, without ideals, well, then what's going to lead you are the passions. So ultimately the question is, what is the truest thing in us? Is it what our passions want, or is it what our ideals are showing to us? And cognitive behavioral therapy is very clear that it's ideals. That if you aim for ideals in your behavior, you start to develop virtuous cycles, meaning that way of acting becomes even more meaningful for you, and you get greater mastery in it, and it's enjoyable. So meaning, mastery, pleasure all increase with virtuous cycles. That's the opposite of vicious cycles, which is what happens when you let certain emotions, like say fear, anxiety, lead you. So if you give in to the anxiety, what it means is you avoid the challenge. But now your system has learned that this is a challenge to be avoided. You've confirmed it's a threat. So it's even more of a challenge the next time. You're going to have even more anxiety. If you avoid it again, the next time you're going to have more. That's what a vicious cycle is. So if we let our negative emotions guide us, you develop these vicious cycles. If you let the ideals guide you, you develop the virtuous cycles. And I think you know Catholic listeners would think, wow, that's very much like you could imagine reading that in Thomas Aquinas. But you can also read it in cognitive behavioral therapy in the writings of the that's it's just this is kind of this is actually the modern application of Skinner. You know, where you know Skinner thinks that the ultimate negative reinforcer is emotion. And so getting relief from anxiety by giving in, that's very reinforcing. It's called a negative reinforcer because you get this reinforcing power of relief when you give into it. Well, that's actually very, that's, uh, that is actually the ultimate in how you form your, a vicious cycle. And ideals are actually the ultimate positive reinforcer because when you do something for the sake of an ideal, it actually becomes more and more meaningful, more inherently enjoyable. So it's all positive reinforcement. So I think you can learn to read behavioral therapy and then later but became cognitive behavioral therapy in a way that's completely consistent with Aristotelian Thomistic virtue theory. And that's actually, I think, some a habit of mind I learned from Thomas Aquinas, which is don't accentuate the difficulties, admit them when they exist, but look for the deeper truths that thinkers are going for. He was able to do an incredible job synthesizing almost every single thinker that went before him, with the exception of Origen, who he really didn't like. <laughs> so, but, but, uh, but, there, but generally speaking, he was an incredibly generous interpreter, trying to find the right way to view everything. And I, I think that idea helps us to then see more clearly that we don't have to create problems where they don't exist. And so much in psychology is could be potentially harmful. I, I totally think that's right, you know, unwisely applied. But there's also a way that you can show this deeper consistency that they were going for. And that now I think part of my work is to make it clear how this fits together.
Yeah, you, you, you mentioned cognitive behavioral therapy a couple of times. And I have to admit, this is probably in all of psychology, maybe like the hardest term to nail down simply mm. because it's so frequently used. Like you can't look up a potential therapist without seeing that they do cognitive behavioral therapy. Yeah. <laughs> but then again, when you actually go see those therapists, they're doing disparately different things. And, and the term totally is right. often used, but not frequently defined in a concise way. So I guess like, what's your most basic definition of cognitive behavioral therapy? Well, it's a tradition. So it doesn't have a concept that's, that's key. One thing is that behaviors are what lead change and emotions follow. So they say this in AA, but it's actually, it's a very good behavioral principle, which is that uh, right feeling follows right acting. So the concept then that the negative feeling, say anxiety, well, the more you face up to the fear, the more it does habituate. So in a way, the process of habituation, what's also called safety learning, is just central to behavioral therapy. It says what happens, how things, how the difficulty gets easier and easier and easier when you don't let it control anymore how you live. So behavioral therapy is very much thinking of the will, actually. It's everything in therapy that directly regards the will. The cognitive part came later. So Aaron Beck is, I believe, the real founder of cognitive behavioral therapy, but he's the founder of the cognitive element of it. He was a psychoanalyst, and from his, his work in, you know, with his patients, sometimes he saw there would be an epiphany, there would be a breakthrough, they would see something in a new way, hmm. and there would be a huge change in their life as a result. And he wanted to figure out how to do that more effectively. How do we help people to come to see their challenges in a new way? Ultimately, that gave birth to reframing so that any challenge that we're facing can actually be seen as an opportunity for learning, growth, and practice. So that's the intellectual part of it. So there's this deep consonance with the whole Thomistic tradition, you know, that there's intellect and will, the two primary powers of the mind, and you have then cognitive therapy and behavioral therapy joined together in time. As you're talking about that, I, I just can't help but think of the way that St. Thomas talks about us forming our passions, our emotions, you know, where he, he, he almost uses like a, a political analogy mm -hmm. where we can't be like that despot, that ruler that just like forces them into action, but it's more of like a political, a leading, a kind of a coaxing. Persuasion. A persuasion. Yeah. yeah and, and, and I really see that connection, that the difference of ideal action, leading feeling versus yeah. the opposite, which would be feeling leading to action, changing your ideal. Um, and, and as you talked uh, before, you mentioned that, that um, Dr. Beck was a um, psychoanalyst, which, correct me if I'm wrong, would have come out of a Freudian school, correct? Totally. Yeah, completely Freudian. And, and that would almost be kind of the opposite, right? The idea of the ego, super ego, id. And, and it's almost as if out of the Freudian theory that, that really it's a matter of changing our behavior to kind of correlate with those deeper desires, with those kind of hidden underneath things. Yeah, that's unfortunately the, um, what you could call cultural Freudianism. Yeah. 
so the way it, he got digested by the culture. The problem with Freud is he said everything each way, like so you can't actually pin them down. So on the one hand, you like if you um, aren't acting on some negative emotion because it's socially or morally inappropriate, yeah, then that's repressing it. But it's equally bad, perhaps worse in Freud's mind, to act out on it. So to act according to it is called acting out, and that's actually not what he was going for at all. So he was going for a kind of balance. Um, I think that ultimately what he was actually after was reframing. He wanted people to see the challenges in their life in some new way, but they were blocked by emotions that they were unwilling to experience. So he developed an elaborate way of helping people through it, an elaborate system of thought. Much of it, I think, is like fantasy. So I, I, you know, I, so I think there's a lot of these things that he was borrowing from philosophic systems mm -hmm. that he probably didn't know enough about because he wasn't a, a trained philosopher, and neither am I. I'm quick to admit. Uh, but so I think he ended up importing a lot from like Nietzsche and other sources in modern philosophy, without really digesting it. So I think the um, technique though that he had was pretty simple. It's called free association. And the idea is you just talk and talk and talk and talk. And eventually this helps you to over, to face up to the emotions you're unwilling to experience and then to start to see past them. Now, in a way, I mean, anyone could, could experience what that's like. Um, there's a website called the most dangerous writing app.com where you practice something called free writing. And you just set a timer, like it's built into the website that you can go for three minutes, five minutes, 10 minutes, and you just have to type and type and type. And if you stop, you lose everything. Mm. So there's a pressure there to keep up typing. And that's actually a lot what, what free associating is like. And in fact, it can be a way of achieving insights or getting unstuck, say you're trying to write a paper. So, so free writing is actually not a bad technique. Free associating, now the problem with this, it took an enormous amount of time. And that's why Beck wanted to find a way to make it more effective. The other problem is that with Freudian therapy, this is what has always been said about it. I haven't read the literature on this myself, but I'm just quoting what I was taught. The treatment for depression for Freudian psychoanalysis was typically seven years. And that's with five times a week psychoanalysis. And tithing, you have to give 10% of your income to the therapist. So there was an extremely costly and time and money approach to treating depression. The natural length of a depressive episode untreated is a year and a half. Okay, so how do you have a treatment that is lasting an extra five and a half years and costing so much more than nothing? <laughs> so it was that kind of, an, this was like the early research in the 70s that led Aaron Beck to think there has to be a better way. And he tried to look then deeply into the cases where people improved, how did they improve? And it's because they started to see their thoughts in a new way. They started to be able to come up with an alternate way of seeing the challenges they were facing. And the better they could practice seeing things in that alternate way, you can't force it, it has to be discovered. But the more you could help them to discover it then, the more effective the treatment was. So uh, I actually got trained by Beck himself. 
uh, and his his daughter Judith at the Beck Institute. So that's, that's, the Beck Institute is one who who um, completed my training in how to do cognitive behavioral therapy. So uh, I think it was, it, was, it was unfortunate he didn't get the Nobel Prize when he was alive. I think he deserved it because he, it was a revolution in how to do psychotherapy. But also like for Catholics, the, Freud, the Freudian stuff probably in its original form already is problematic, but in its cultural form, which is that where it's as if he was trying to, like, you know, people think Freud is saying, you just have to unleash every id, every monster of the id, you know, uh, and then see what happens, which he wasn't saying. But that's kind of how it was interpreted. That did such damage to the world and particularly to the church. Uh, as you were talking about just the length of time it would take to treat, you know, we're almost kind of at the opposite end of things, you know, like that. Um, it's kind of a vulgar trope about psychiatrists, but adio, diagnose and adios, that idea of you sort of get the diagnosis, get the medicine, your visit's a 15 minute where you get a couple of disinterested questions that maybe adjust the dose. Mm-hmm. But being a cognitive yeah. behavioral psychiatrist, you know, you probably are spending more time with your patients than the average psychiatrist is. Um, so what does that look like in your practice? I would even say I might spend more time up front, but less in the long run that cognitive behavioral therapy is meant to be effective immediately. People should start to see a change right away. So when you're helping, when I'm, my specialty is anxiety disorders. So, and I try in the first session, I collect history beforehand with online forms so that I don't have to go through the history. I can confirm make sure there's nothing big we're missing, and then dive in. What is the thing that they're most afraid of? And then I can flip their view of anxiety itself. And then we can bring it into the session so that they can learn immediately what it's like to trigger it and then to learn to welcome it and ultimately to use it for their own growth. So you can teach people very quickly. Um, And I found that when one or two sessions... I was helping people through anxiety disorders that may have been there for 30 years. Um, Now, I would still have other sessions because you have to maintain the gains, but I love to see, and I just studied it so intensely, how do you get the biggest bounce from a session? And that's actually what led me to really try and perfect the work of exposure therapy so that I could do it in the first session or two so that they could have this completely transformative learning experience. That's what led me to realize there's really three steps. And the first is reframing. They need to intellectually see what we're about to do as a new learning opportunity so that that way they're willing to do it. But then you can make that willingness go even deeper through letting their attention rest on the feelings of anxiety more completely. Later, this became called mindfulness. And mindfulness is... Actually, it's an interesting thing. How, how does mindfulness fit with Aquinas's view of the person? I can, we can talk about that if you want. Please. But yeah. when, you, when you help people to mindfully attend to the anxiety during an actual exposure, the exposure goes like 100 times faster. Instead of taking 90 minutes, it can take 90 seconds. That's not really an exaggeration. If you can find a way to to bring up one you know, person's anxiety level and then teach them at the same time to be drinking it in fully. Fully felt emotions don't last that long. 
okay, so that makes it easy then to continue to like the step three is keep leaning into the challenge. So if a person were afraid of heights, they first need to see the balcony as the perfect opportunity to, to do some safety learning, to overcome their fear of heights. While on the balcony, they need to be totally welcoming the sensation of anxiety that comes. And then they need the behavioral part, which is to lean into it gently, maybe getting closer to the railing. Uh, all of that gives such a clear signal to their threat detector, the amygdala, that it rapidly does safety learning. And then the next day, if they came back, their anxiety would be much less, and the next day less, and the next day less. So people can learn to overcome their anxiety, learning how to gently approach it with the right attitude in mind. So those three steps, reframing mindfulness challenge, are the complete summary of all of cognitive behavioral therapy. The, they're the three branches. Uh, mindfulness is a later branch that got added, and it's all about the attention. So you have... An, you have um, in the, in the Thomistic framework, it's actually intellect, memory, and will. Those are the three powers of the mind. And memories act as attending to what is. Um, and so that's what attention is, and that's what mindfulness exercises. So you have an exercise for the intellect, an exercise for memory, an exercise for the will, and boom, you get the most efficient exposure. That's what led to this kind of breakout idea of optimal work. As you were talking about kind of a safe exposure... What came to mind were, I mean, maybe in the last 10 to 20 years, so much has come out about trauma and mm -hmm. this idea of trauma. And um, I'm most familiar with the work of Dr. Bessel van der Kolk and Dr. Peter Levine and mm -hmm. some of their ideas around kind of how there's an artifact in the body after a traumatic event, if it's traumatizing, but then also kind of, I like the terms of titrating and pendulating, so yeah. kind of giving small the, amounts. Those are Peter Levine's ideas, yeah. Shifting back and forth between safety. And I guess I'm curious about that. Is that trauma-informed approach important for CBT or do you it's find- It's a type of CBT. Okay. Yeah. So CBT is the big genus and then somatic therapies for PTSD are a kind of species within that. So it fits within then? Yeah. Yeah. And it, and it all has the same, one of the things that makes- uh, CBT different than, say, the Freudian approach. And this is, the CBT is meant to teach people skills that they can practice in ordinary life so that they eventually don't need CBT. The idea is that these skills that you, the therapist helps you to work on honing in the sessions are things that you can practice again and again and again. And so there is not the focus then in CBT on trying to recall the past to achieve some insight cure. Mm -hmm. That as if just seeing like some insight now that you understand yourself in a new way, then the difficulties disappear. That attitude is actually anti-challenge. It's trying to help people. It's like promising people that they'll somehow be free of challenge without engaging it and using it to grow. In that sense, the Freudian, that kind of approach is opposite to CBT. CBT is always about engaging the present challenge, not trying to negate it by coming to an insight from studying your past. So there's almost now, when, no need to dig that stuff up then? Yeah. The so the, the one kind of thing that, and this is always true, that PTSD is just a little bit different than most things. Hmm. And because what you're dealing with there is 
in the cognitive behavioral framework could be thought of as a phobia of a memory, the traumatic memory. So when, the more people are, have a phobia of it, the more they try to escape it. Their system stays on edge. So there, in fact, the treatment, and these are the basis of, in some ways, all proven treatments, the memory itself has to be detoxified. So, and there needs to be a way of processing the threat charge that that memory has acquired. And the more desperately the person tries not to think of it, the more of a charge it acquires. So those memories then become very sticky. They're easily activated uh, and they lead, they're in some ways always traumatizing when they come back. Yeah. So every treatment for PTSD involves finding a way to make it safer to approach the memory. And so titration is Peter Levine's term for being able to bit by bit go to the memory so that you can process some of the charge that it's acquired. So you get a little bit of the memory and you go back. Um, that's, as, that's, uh, that's a safe way to do it. Uh, in general, just to say when you're doing exposure work, there's two approaches. You either start with the easy things and work your way to the harder things, or you start with the hardest things and you work your way to easier. So, you know, so it's systematic desensitization, which they also call titration, uh, or it's flooding. My approach generally for non-trauma-based things is to mix them as much as I can to go aim for an anxiety at around seven or eight out of 10 when bringing up a thought of something. And there's lots of different ways you can do thought exposures or imaginal exposures. Um, it can also work, um, and this I have done with, tra with, with trauma itself, to just have the movie of the trauma play slowly and then pause when anxiety gets to around, to, say, a seven, and help the person to process it, drinking in the sensation, welcoming it, and very quickly it goes down to like a three or four, and then you go again and you play the memory picking up where you left off. And as soon as it gets to a six or seven again, you pause. And you can do that and you just very gently work through the memory, learning how to welcome the sensations that come with it. So trauma work does mean going to the past because there's this one particular memory. The, um, there is a bit of controversy um, regarding Bessel van der Kolk. Okay. And it has to do with this idea that the, you can have repressed traumatic memories. That has, to my knowledge, never been shown to be possible. So uh, the, the book that goes through this literature is called Mistakes Were Made by Carol Tavris. Uh, she's a very senior psychologist, uh, and she is in a position to actually, it's, I think it's an interesting concept. These memories, because people have a phobia of them, they are desperate to get them out of their mind. But tra trauma memories are actually not repressible. So this idea that you can repress a memory and now it hides as a symptom in the body, that's a little bit unproven. Hmm. But that you will have, um, let's say, somatic effects of these traumas is completely true. And that you have stored tension in the body that can be worked on, that's completely true. That, I think, is obvious to everyone who's worked with people with trauma, that, yes, they do store tension in the body, 
And that's part of the thing you're helping them to work through, to open up to feeling more fully. And naturally things relax when you pay mindful attention to them. You're talking about controversies. I can't help but bring up Freudianism in the Catholic Church. If anyone puts those terms in, they're probably going to encounter Dr. Conrad Bars, yeah. um, one of the most famous Catholic psychiatrists in history. And, um, and I've appreciated your work um, where you've talked about some of his concepts. And um, was just curious on your take on, on his work and its application in the church. Yeah. So I don't think he is a foundation that can be built on, but he has insights that some of them are very good. So this idea that we do heal our emotions by feeling them and that it's the desperate attempt to not feel emotion that leads to psychopathology, there's a lot of truth in that. So the avoidance of emotion does make people um, come up with involuntarily strategies for getting rid of them. So there's a lot of truth in the helping people to face up to the emotions that they're not willing to feel and to increase their willingness. In fact, like if someone were really willing to feel, say, anxiety, well, then the that would change their relationship to any situations they fear. They would just come to see you. Know, like what if they could enter into that situation and just welcome the anxiety or better yet use it? The emotion, the anxiety is actually simply adrenaline with a negative charge. So we can learn to reframe adrenaline itself and to see it as what it is. It's the ultimate performance enhancer. It stretches our abilities in any situation where we need it. So if you, that's like the sense of willingness to feel an emotion actually can open up whole new possibilities for growth. The problem with bars is this book uh, that deals particularly with uh, uh, obsessive compulsive disorder. So it's psychic wholeness and healing is the, is the name of it. Because there he says that people who have OCD are not free and therefore they are not culpable. So that whatever they have scruples about doing say receiving communion after you know drinking coffee on the way into church okay and now they're you know that, that's i think it might even be a kind of example he gives yet they they're you know they, he thinks they they must do it in order to overcome their scruple about doing it right so or uh say that there's some sin they committed against purity than going to communion without going to confession because they're so scrupulous that they have to go to confession. So they must go to communion without going to confession. And he assures these people that they are not culpable because they are not free. So if something removes your freedom, it removes your culpability. Yeah, I think culpability is not misguided. the only problem with sin though. <laughs> well, not only that, but say the treatment works. Hmm. Okay. So he gets someone to do something that they were scrupulous about doing. At that very moment, then, they would be free. And then they would be in a state of mortal sin. <laughs> they, would, they would have sinned because they were now capable of sinning. And it's so like, I, I, don't, I don't really understand how um, the treatment is, in some ways, worse than the disease. So getting people to do objectively sinful things because of your theory saying that they're not subjectively sinful for them, 
I just, there's no, there's nothing in in Aquinas that could remotely say that that would be okay. There's nothing in Alphonsus Liguri that could remotely say that's okay. And not only that, but it's a core, it's a core part of, in fact, all psychotherapy that there is a core freedom that always remains. And that's what we build on. So, and you do help people to exercise their freedom. So you can't change strategies, like one strategy to make them free and then another when they are free to not sin. Um, it's a completely confused, and I would even say time-bound view of OCD and scruples. So I think we've moved past that. You can always do exposures in a way that do not involve violating people's faith. Faith is an ideal that has to guide work. You cannot have work violate ideals, right? There's no healing that can take place by getting people to do actions that violate their ideals. The other concept that seems to be there's this idea that that emotions sort of grow up and then there's sort of what, what helps them grow up is an absolute kind of acceptance and affirmation. So there's almost like a voluntary incontinence that then leads to continence. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. And I, and I just wonder about that concept of like, do our emotions need to be sort of reared as a child or is that mm -hmm. maybe not the best analogy for what's happening? So, Again, there are elements here that are that are good because we want to be willing to embrace any emotion that shows up. Mm -hmm. It's never a sin to simply feel the emotion. You know, it doesn't mean that you t that you try to incite it. So let's say you get really angry. Well, how should you react to your anger when it's there? You could imagine the anger as some furious child within you that wants to break things and smash things and, and yell, well, well, what's the best way then to deal with it? I think that we can actually be very accepting and validating of this reaction that we have. Somehow it makes sense. Our emotions are never senseless, but we don't help them by giving into them. To actually give into the anger and go break things and smash things and say horrible things, no one thinks that's a good idea. So feeling the anger, in fact, anger is one of the easier emotions to work with. You know, <clears throat> the better people get it, being able to feel their emotion, be curious about it. Where in their body do they feel it? Aristotle and Aquinas both thought it's right in the front of the chest. There's a swirl of tension in the front of the chest. You can rate your anger. It's a great way to actually break the force of anger, just to ask yourself, as soon as you're angry, how angry am I? And rate it on a scale of zero to 10. And immediately it shifts. You're like, okay, this might be a five out of six. Okay. Even if it's an eight, okay, I'm just going to like let it, myself have time to cool down. You know, and I'm going to try to not act on the anger. Acting on it will only encourage it in the wrong way. It's much better, in fact, to act the opposite, which is what meekness is. So meekness is the strength of character that allows you to have self-mastery in the face of anger so that you can still have a measured response. That's a, that's, it's not just a virtue, it's a beatitude to, to be aiming for. So, so on the one hand, we do want to um, feel, feeling the emotion is like touching a child when it's in a tantrum. Mm -hmm. You need to connect with the child in the tantrum, you know, and even physically if that's possible, you know, to, so that they, they feel connected to you. And you don't need to fix their emotion. You don't need to get them to calm down immediately. They can feel whatever they're feeling. So I think that's the, the um, there is like a healthy way of, 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 of viewing this. Um, 
What does it mean though to affirm the person or to affirm the motion? So I think this is another problem in, in, in Conrad Bars. Affirmation uh, is, in my, in, in my mind, a kind of uh, reward that people give others that just tempts people to be insincere hmm. or, or to be manipulative. So I, you know, I, I think that the real affirmation is loving people and attending to them, but to have to go through some rituals of affirmation, um, to me, doesn't seem healthy. And then people start to feel like, Ooh, no one in my life is affirming me enough. They get kind of greedy for affirmation. I'm not sure that's a healthy dynamic in any way. So okay. I don't think that it's part of a healthy relationship or bond to like be demanding affirmation from the people. And, and, and at some point then I'm no longer able to be healed unless somebody comes along who can affirm me. I know. <laughs> right? So it, it's, yeah. it can be very disempowering. I think exactly. maybe the best part of that might be the contemporary idea of co-regulation, right? Yeah. The, the support that you give the other person in the room by being attentive and being present. Um, mm -hmm. and, and I think the best of, of what's in there gets captured in that concept of providing some kind of safety. Um, but I think that's really important. You know, honestly, my, I'd mentioned when we were preparing, but my video that's gotten the most traction is where I talked about Conrad Bars. So I know there's a lot of interest in this topic, but mm -hmm. there's, I think, also a need, I think, to take a critical look and find what's good, but also, um, you know, just be aware of, of some, some ideas to be careful of or ideas that, yeah. you know, the work was... Yeah, I think that for, for his time, he was better than most psychiatrists by far. So I don't, sometimes it's easy when we're looking back yep. on, on people and we just forget the, the whole social, like the matrix they were in. So, and I can't say that I would be doing like better because every psychiatrist back in his day was trained in Freudian approaches. Yep. It was just felt to be the field as if this is what psychiatry was. Uh, it wasn't until later, like in the, in the really 90, in the eighties is when CBT started to become a powerhouse. So, and then now everyone says they do CBT. So I want to be unfair in saying like, you know, he didn't have all the insights of CBT before it was developed. Mm -hmm. So, you know, so I think that we can affirm that there is good in his approach, you know, but at the same time, I don't think we should say that it's like a version of psychotherapy that has research support that's well studied you know cbt is extremely well studied mm -hmm. and so now not all the studies are of high quality um, unfortunately particularly with trauma related things the studies generally are not of very high quality so it's hard to get exact data on on some on many many approaches but just to say that yeah i don't think we should try to like turn back the clock to where it was when um, healing the unaffirmed or psychic holiness and healing were written. So, yeah, that's helpful. That's really helpful. And, um, you mentioned a bit ago, optimal work in a few of your example, you've talked about this idea of work and this optimal work system that you've helped develop is, um, basically a, a masterclass, a platform with a, a set of tools available, um, on an online platform where people can go through these core concepts of reframing mm -hmm. of mindfulness of challenge, um, and really, I think I'm personally going through it myself and in the fourth section of it now. And I love how you've very um, just 
encapsulated so much wisdom from so many different fields. <laughs> you know, yeah. it's really is like each, each session is like a very dense, but also very simple and understandable, um, chunk of wisdom that then can be easily applied. Um, but this, mm-hmm. well, thank this, you for saying that that's, that was of course the goal. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. But this, what, like what is optimal work in, in your mind? And then specifically what you talk in there about is, is work being a place to sort of grow in virtue, right? Yeah. That the, the character you form in work spills over to the rest of your life. Exactly. So the way we work is the way we live. And the biggest way to change a person's life is to change how they approach work. For any resolution to be powerful in a person's life, this is just classic behavioral therapy, it should be specific, positive, and frequent. So you want a specific resolution that is for a, the behavior you're trying to shape. Not, it's not not doing something. It's doing something deliberately. But you also want it to be frequent enough. So the optimal work thinks of self-mastery as having three areas. And it has to do with your attitude, your attention, and then crafting your actions. And that's what reframing mindfulness and challenge are all gesturing at. So you can develop self-mastery progressively, hour by hour, provided you just pause before you start working and then practice the reframe. Particularly think in this next hour of work, what, is there anything particularly challenging that I'm dreading or reluctant to engage? And then to think, how could that bring out my best? How is there any kind of practice that could eventually make that easy or even enjoyable to do? So you start to think in new ways about how this hour of work is. In fact, what you're asking people is, what is the cross in this next hour of work that you can lovingly embrace to bring out a virtue? So you can think of it as the cross. You can think of the virtue you would like to develop as as you're embracing it. Um, All of that is the domain of the reframe. And it's an intellectual sight that you need. And once you have it, you can settle your attention in inner silence in the present moment, at least briefly. What that does is it gives your attention a new kind of engagement with the present moment, a new kind of traction. Then once you, um, you know, so this is like, that's the mindfulness part. And it's like building up a kind of potential energy in your mind. And then you launch into the hour of work, challenging yourself step-by-step step until you finish it. So we'd like people to think about their tasks that they're about to do, break it into a few steps, and those are your guideposts as you're doing sprints. You sprint to each step, and then at the end, you're done. You take a total break. And then after a total break of, say, 10 minutes, 15 minutes, you come back and you do another kind of sprint of work. So we teach people how to really craft what they're about to do so that it has their total attention And the result of practicing reframing mindfulness and challenge in work is that you'll find you can go right into flow. Flow is the highest state of focus. It's where you have your highest intelligence, your IQ, your greatest ability to speak, to synthesize things, to write, to problem solve, do calculations, whatever you name it, flow enhances it. So by teaching people how to attain flow so rapidly in their work, we end up helping people get way more done than they could have ever before. 
But it's interesting that we're not aiming for productivity. We get productivity. What we're really aiming for is a growth in self-mastery. The flow is what happens when you've mastered your attitude and your attention and your action. The result of that is flow. And then you can build it so that if you work in this way, where each hour of work is somehow crafted to bring out your best, well, it's a completely different thing than when you go home. You know, now your work has been preparing you. So it's a, you know, so that when, you know, we say the most important golden hour is your first hour home. So when you're, when you're, when you're with your family, you know, so that you're really trying to bring your best to them now too. So you're, so you learn how to practice these, these psychological skills, reframing mindfulness, setting challenges, you get better and better at it. And then you start to see a transformation in, in all of life. We have an inventory on optimal work that measures that transformation. So people can see, in fact, their progress. The more golden hours you do, up to four a day, the faster and more sure that progress is. The, um, the scripture that's quickly become my favorite in the last couple of years is, the truth will set you free. Um, you know, Jesus, of course, other yeah. place in this gospel says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. But, um, but I, as we've been talking here, it just struck me, for this preparation for the golden hour, the reframing, the mindfulness, in a sense, there's a way that the reframing is touch, making sure your, your intellect's in touch with the truth, right? An mm -hmm. ideal. Yeah, that's right. Truth. But then mindfulness is bringing your senses in touch with the truth, right? Just mm -hmm. noticing yeah. what's there, the sensation, the what, the, being grounded in reality. And in this... Um, distracting that so many times when I'm dysregulated or, or incapable to do what I want to do or be the person I want to be, there's a way at which my passions are being affected by something that's not actually there. Yeah, exactly. Right? The anxiety or the memory or the trauma or whatever, but I'm being moved by something that's not true. It's not present. Yeah. Um, and there's this way that by beginning that hour of work, first orienting your mind, then orienting your senses to the truth, um, yeah, just, and then being able to, to face the challenge to be free. Yeah. So yeah, the way we see it is, okay, this goes to, um, to, uh, to get a little bit philosophic here, just to go a bit Please. deeper into Aquinas that you can think of us, our, the power of the mind. If you look at it from the, the kind of action that it is, we have perceiving which is what the intellect does, and choosing, which is what the will does. But perceiving then, you could perceive the truth or you can perceive being. Right? So these are two distinct things. So if you enumerate the powers of the mind based on the action, you end up with two, and, and then you have intellect and will. But Aquinas also at times will do it the other way and say there are three powers of the mind. There's a power that pays attention to truth, but also can have falsehood, that's the intellect. And then there's the power of the will, which is its object is the good, but also evil by contrast. But then memory is the power that's object is being itself. And it also then has non-being. Non-being would be the thoughts in our head, the, the images, the phantasms that, that, are, that cross our awareness. Those are as close to non-being as we get. Being, you're right to say, comes through the senses, but it's actually the intelligence attending to being that is really what mindfulness is. 
So it's the deliberate attending. So all these things involve the will as well, because you have to deliberately use your intellect and, and memory. So, and what's interesting about this is then you can see how if the intellect is about what's true and reframing then is an act of the intellect, it means that a good reframe should be more true. And that's exactly right. It is more, it's a more complete truth. And the ability to reframe challenges then is perfected by the virtue of faith. With faith, we see every challenge is coming to us from directly from our Father God. So we have this sense that even if there's a difficulty here, this difficulty is intended deliberately by him for my present growth. So with faith, we can always reframe. In a way, reframing is the way we constantly exercise faith. We exercise it every time we see things as coming from God's hands. And then we ask, how can I give him the best in this next hour? That prospective looking of that, that's faith that's lived very deeply. What's, hope is a different matter. And hope perfects memory. And what it does, St. John the Cross says, that hope perfects memory by annihilating it. It holds it in its first act, which is attending to what is so that it never can really form the image of what is not. So, but hope pierces the veil of the present moment to reach through what is into the inner sanctuary where God dwells and upholds what is. So it's more, so basically hope brings metaphysics to mindfulness. You experience being itself as an effect and God is the immediate cause. You experience, that's the gift of knowledge. So the gift of knowledge, which perfects hope, is about experiencing yourself as an effect of which God is the immediate cause. That felt sense is actually what knowledge gives. So, and that perfects hope. So hope anchors us in the presence of God through the present moment. So we don't make more contact with God by having phantasms that refer to God in our, in our imagination. We make more immediate contact with him by seeking him as the very instantaneous right now source of my being, holding me in being. All that is good in me is being created in me right now by him. All the lights I have, the graces he gives, all of that is being created by him right now. And so that's also why hope perfects humility. You know, humility allows us to see all that we have is on loan. There's nothing we have not received, nothing that's good. That's helpful. Adjusting memory up with the powers of the soul. Because there's places where he talks about it as an internal sense. Um, that's different. Yeah, this is a power of the mind. Yeah. And, and, and then as he lays out, you know, sort of like the effects of sin, the darkening of the mind, the will turning toward evil. Um, but then he, he lays out the cardinal virtues kind of along those lines, right? prudence for the intellect, um, justice for the will, um, so on and so forth. But then yep. when he lays out the theological virtues, it almost implies that hope is, is taking the, the will to a different place. Um, but, but then reading John of the Cross, you're right. He lists memory basically up there with, with um, intellect and will. And knowing that Aquinas kind of does it both ways. Yeah. There's one helpful. point in the Prima Secundae where Aquinas says, of course, you could also 
think of if you list basically three powers of the mind, intellect, memory, will, mm. then you have faith applies to intellect, hope applies to memory, and charity to the will. Yeah. So in fact, charity is the essence of challenge. So I think that what's interesting, in a sense, what the topic that most interests me in life is contemplation. That contemplation is the only way we can love God with our whole heart and mind and soul and strength. So, and it seems to me that the end result of learning how to set, how to do an hour of work is you can apply the same things to an hour of prayer or a half hour of prayer or whatever, whatever it is that people do. So that, and the reframe here then is essentially asking what is, you know, what would be the highest thing you could hope for in this time of prayer? Like what's, and that's actually, it ends up leading to a stronger and stronger desire, you know, a desire for God. Uh, mindfulness, I think, just becomes silence in the presence of God. And then challenge is really the attempt to love God with the whole heart, which ultimately is contemplative love. So I think that you can have this, there's a prayer of desire, there's a prayer of silence, and there's a prayer of this contemplative love. Mm-hmm. That, that That's kind of the, the path that we're on. In the history of the church, that first one is called affective prayer. The second is the prayer of quiet. And then the third is contemplation. So that you can see that the normal development of the spiritual life means going beyond thinking with phantasms, which is concepts Sources and what is not. Yep. To actually seeking God immediately in himself. That's what opens up in the possibility for real affective prayer and quiet and contemplation. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's great. And, um, and I think that's a perfect place to land it. So with that, go and check out optimalwork.com. The masterclass, like I said, is just rich, simple, but also deep. Um, if you want your, really, the, the proposal here, the idea that prayer is going to help you to work better, and, and, but then work's also going to help you to pray better. <laughs> what a fulfillment of the uh, motto of the Benedictines, right? Yes. Um, but I, and, and the, I think just the distilling of wisdom that's there too. And you also mentioned, um, you know, you've kind of applied this material to the area of purity too, which is, I think, a common area of struggle for folks. So everything we've mentioned in this episode, whether it be a concept or a, a thinker or an approach I'll have down in the show notes for people to find, all the websites, so I'll share there, um, Dr. Major's website, Optimal Work, and other places where you can find more of his work. But with that, thank you so much for coming on the show, Kevin. Thank you so much, Andrew. Thank you so much for listening to or watching Physically Spiritual. I'm so grateful for every moment you've given to this show. Please remember to subscribe, like, follow, and share the show. And if you want to support everything we're doing at Physically Spiritual or at Awaken Catholic, you can become a patron of the show at physicallyspiritual.com. To find anything I'm up to, head over to becominggift.com. God bless everyone.